0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all in church today. Lovely to welcome you online as well. Thank you so much for joining with us as we worship the Lord together today. My name is Paul Cook. I'm one of the leaders here at Belmont, and I'm continuing today our series on the Bible that Jesus read. Um, we've been looking at uh, seven, or we're in the process of looking at seven big themes from the Old Testament in this series. So we've already looked at creation and Abraham and Exodus. Today we're going to be looking at David and uh, King David, that is, and then we're going to be looking at prophets, gospel, and psalms as we continue to go through the series. Um, When I was thinking about this morning's uh, topic, I immediately thought of family stories. And I think uh, we all enjoy family stories, don't we? Uh, Hence the popularity of the BBC TV series, Who Do You Think You Are?, where uh, celebrities get to uncover aspects of their family story, and often there are surprises that are hidden there. But we don't have to be a celebrity, do we, to be fascinated by family stories we all have one and one of the most precious books in my house I've got lots of books and Sarah keeps telling me to get rid of some of them but this is one I am never going to get rid of because this was written by my dad just a few years ago uh, a few years before he died he wrote this story this book this memoir so that those of us who would continue the family would have the story to help us think about where we fitted in And I'm sure the same would have been true for the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a family that he was a part of, a story that he was a part of. And this is nothing that's in the Bible, by the way. I'm just making this up now. But I imagine that I should never do that as a preacher. I've given you fair warning. I imagine that when Jesus was a little boy, he would say to his mum, Oh, can I have a story, please, mum? Can I have a story? Can you give me the one about the angel? I imagine him asking that. And then I imagine Mary sharing with him that amazing thing that had happened to her when the angel Gabriel came to her uh, before Jesus had even been conceived in her womb through the Holy Spirit when she was just still a young virgin. And the angel says to her, you will conceive and give birth to a son. This bit really is in the Bible. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Jesus's family story includes King David as one of his ancestors, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. That's Jesus's family story, the immediate one, perhaps that Mary would have told him as his mum. But of course he had a much longer family history as well. Uh, We call it the Hebrew Bible. He didn't need BBC researchers to go and find out for him his family story because it's written in this book. The whole of the Old Testament bears witness to the family story of Jesus. And if this morning you're here as uh, people who already follow the Lord Jesus and you you tend to think, well, you know, I really like the New Testament because that's all about Jesus and the church, but I'm not so keen on the Old Testament because I don't quite get it. I would so encourage you, and that's why we're having this series to connect with the Old Testament as well, because the two are inseparable. And in fact, if you just open the New Testament, this is the first page of this copy of the the Bible to Matthew chapter one, how does it start? This is, very first bit of the New Testament, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there's a whole load of names from the Old Testament. We simply cannot disentangle the two halves of this book. And that's why we're, we're doing this series, The Bible That Jesus Read. And Philip Yancey, who wrote the book of that name, uh, said this, and we quoted it the other week through Johnny. I make no apologies for quoting it again, because it's a great quote. He says, when we read the Old Testament, we read the Bible Jesus read and used. These are the prayers Jesus prayed, the poems he memorized, the songs he sang, the bedtime stories, he heard as a child, the prophecies he pondered. He revered every jot and tittle of the Hebrew scriptures. That's a quote from Jesus himself, where he says how much he appreciates and uh, reveres the Old Testament. The more we comprehend this Old Testament, the more we comprehend Jesus. We have two courses that we run here at the church quite regularly. We have one that is a kind of an introduction to the Christian faith. If you've got any questions about Christianity, please do come along to our Alpha course. We've only just started running it, uh, so this Tuesday evening, 7.15 for a 7.30 meal, please come along uh, if you'd like to find out more about the Christian faith and enjoy the Alpha course. The second course that we run is called the Bible course, and that, as the title suggests, is more about giving a big overview of the big story, the big picture of the Bible. Um, And in that course, we use a timeline that looks like this, a kind of a a model and a timeline combined. But because in this series, we're just looking at the Old Testament, let's zoom in on that part of the story and see where we've got to so far in this series. Uh, We started a few weeks ago with Simon, who talked about creation, and he emphasised the fact that God's creation was very good. He talked about original goodness as 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 well as about original sin. And then we moved on with Johnny to think about Abraham, that man who was called by God to be blessed. But not just so that he could hoard the blessing for himself, but so that he could be a blessing. And if we're followers of Jesus, we are called to be a blessing because we have been blessed by our good God. And then last week with Gemma, we thought about Exodus. We thought about the fact that the God that we worship is the God who liberates, the God who frees the God who brings his people out of slavery into the promised land as Jesus leads us out of sin and death towards his kingdom. And today, we've moved on a few centuries and we're in the time of the kings. So we're going to think about David, but we're also going to think about the wider group of kings around him as the, as the original kingdom splits into two parts. So that's where we're going this morning. Now, kings today, certainly if we're in the UK as as we are, are are kind of figureheads, aren't they? But they don't have particularly any any power. But in the ancient world, of course, kings had huge power. And when Jesus looked around him, he saw several kings who would have given him a a model of what kingship was like. Uh, The biggest of them all was, of course, the Roman Caesar. I say, of course, because the land where Jesus lived was under Roman occupation, and it was ruled from the city, the center of Rome. Now, Augustus was a very good Roman emperor, but as far as the Jews were concerned, he was just the head of the occupying forces, the hated occupying forces. He wasn't a great model for kingship at all for Jesus. He did play a role, of course, in having Jesus born in the city of David in the Christmas story, because of the decree that he made that everybody should go to their ancestral home to be taxed. But other than that, he's just a distant figure who has no interest, really, in the people of Judea other than their taxes. That's it. But he'd installed um, a puppet king in Judea and in that area called Herod, Herod the Great. What do we know about him from the Bible? Well, we know that he tried to murder Jesus when he was a little tiny boy. And he didn't manage to do that, but he massacred other people tiny children he's a terrible man he's no good as a message as a model of kingship for us at all is he and then his son was was he any better herod antipas not really he's the one who has Jesus' cousin john the baptist put to death beheaded and he's the one who plays a role in Jesus' own crucifixion so when jesus looked around and saw the kings around him he didn't have much to go on really So, he would have looked here. He would have looked back to his story. He'd have looked uh, to all of those who featured in that family tree. Matthew puts it into three sections. The middle section is the one that has all of the names of the kings that are in Jesus' family story. And last week uh, in the evening service, uh, Richard Judd was talking about 1 Corinthians, and he referenced this film, this Clint Eastwood spaghetti western Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he said the teachers in Corinth were a mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I thought that's a great image for the kings of Israel because they really were the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I suppose when Jesus read these stories that we have in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles in the middle of the Old Testament, he'd have had lessons in leadership, wouldn't he? He'd have seen what good kings looked like. He'd have seen what bad kings looked like. He'd have seen what very ugly kings looked like. And they would all have played a part as he thought about his own role as the heir to David's throne. Now, kings in the Bible um, <laughs> don't get a good press to start with. You see, when, when, Jesus, when, the, uh, when the prophet Samuel first talks about kings... He reveals to the people of Israel what kings are going to be like. And it's not a pretty picture. This is 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Uh, all the Israel, uh, the elders of the, the nation of Israel, they gather together and they come to Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges. So they're the leaders in Israel before the kings, the last of the judges. And they come to his home at Ramah. And they say to him, you are old. I would never begin a conversation with that statement. Uh, even if it's true, it's probably not the best way to start. Um And your sons do not follow your ways. That's not helpful either. His back's already up, I can imagine, Samuel. So now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They looked around, they saw kings. They said, we want one of those. We want a king. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, along with all the other stuff. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, Samuel. Don't take it personally. They have rejected me as their king, says God. The Israelites had a king. It was Yahweh who had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, as we were thinking about last week. But they wanted a visible king. They wanted a human king. And so God says to them, okay, listen to what the people are saying, Samuel, but warn them solemnly And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And this is not like the small print. This is front and center about what kings are going to be like in ancient Israel. And it's outlined in the next few verses of 1 Samuel 8. And we won't read them all, but this is what it says. It says, these kings are going to take your boys and they're going to put them in the army. They're going to take your young women and your young men and they're going to make them their Uh, part of their forced labor groups. Your land is going to become his land and the land that you keep under your possession is going to be really heavily taxed. The servants that you have, he's going to take for himself and you yourselves will be reduced to slavery. That's what a bad king, of which there are a lot in the history of Israel, is going to look like. That's not great, is it? Jesus had lots of negative lessons in leadership as he read through the story of the kings. But thank you, Lord, he also had some good lessons in leadership as well. And when we come to David, we see a different kind of king from the sort of king we've just been thinking about. Samuel, uh, later on in his, in his book, uh, chapter 13, says these words. Um, these are words that he speaks to the very first king of Israel, Saul. And he says to him, because Saul disobeys God, he says to him, Saul, you're going to be replaced. And the person that you're going to be replaced with is this man, the one that the Lord has sought out, a man who is after God's own heart. And that was David. He was a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful description for somebody, isn't it? A man or a woman after God's own heart. And I guess what we can see from that very, very quick think about kingship in ancient Israel is that God works through very imperfect institutions. The monarchy in ancient Israel was very imperfect. The good, yes, but the bad and the ugly as well. And if we just take that forward in time to today, we can say, I think that the Lord works through the very imperfect institution of the church You see the headlines, you know how bad the church can be and perhaps you've experienced the church at its worst, some of you. I'm so sorry if that's been the case for you. But the church can also be a community of grace, a family of support and of love. It is the good as well as the bad and the ugly. And some of you I know are looking looking for a church at the moment and I don't know whether it's Belmont or whether it's somewhere else, it doesn't matter In one sense, as long as you find a place where you can be blessed and be a blessing. But I hope you're not looking for a perfect church. Because if you're looking for a perfect church, you'll be sadly disappointed. It really doesn't exist. We try our best to be God's people in this place, but sometimes we mess up. I'm on the leadership team. Sometimes we mess up. I'm sorry, we do. We don't mean to, but sometimes we do. And sometimes we do in our ministries and in our home groups and in our, in our individual relationships. We are an imperfect institution. But thank you, Lord. You don't give up on us and you keep working through us. So David, well, David is, is like God in a tiny way. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's, he's only a tiny reflection of what the Lord is like. Jesus is God. He's not just like God. He is God, and not just in a tiny way, but in every way. We've just finished a, a series in this church in the Gospel of John. It lasted a whole year. I love the series. This is one of the key verses for me in that whole series, John chapter 10 and verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus that's what God is like in a body. Jesus is God in every way, where David is like God in a tiny way. And when we think about kingship, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a servant king, isn't he? Jesus always loves the people that he works with. He serves them He gives himself for them, and that's what leadership should be like, whether it's leadership in the church or leadership in the home or leadership in the workplace or leadership in our spheres of friendship and influence. We're called to be servants of those that we we come alongside. And when Jesus, when he rode in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the king of the Jews and the people acclaimed him, what did they do? They cheered, and Matthew in his gospel says this is to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament, of course. The Bible Jesus read, the prophecy of Zechariah, where it says, say to daughter Zion, another name for Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you. He's not riding a war horse. He's not like Caesar. He's gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the king that we worship this morning, the servant king. But David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he could be a very selfish king, not always a servant king. And I think we see that uh, in something we're going to look at at a moment. But just before we get there, just look at this uh, description of David. This is after he's died. The chronicler says in 1 Kings 15 that David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, which sounds amazing, doesn't it? But then there comes the end of the verse, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And if you're thinking, who on earth is Uriah the Hittite? Well, you may never never have heard of him before, but... Um, You might possibly have heard of his wife. His wife was called Bathsheba. And David did something terrible to and with Bathsheba. See, she was uh, taking a bath on the top of her house in Jerusalem. And her husband, Uriah, was a soldier and he'd gone off to fight. And David, the king, should have gone off to fight as well as the head of the army, but he'd stayed behind in Jerusalem. And he goes up, To the top of his palace and he looks out and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath and instead of doing what he should have done which was to turn his eyes away and go back downstairs and go and do something useful as a king he looks he lingers he lusts and because he can because he's the king he calls for her he commits adultery with her it's a terrible Abuse of power on the part of a man who should have been acting after God's own heart. And yet here was felled by sin. And then he has a problem because this, this poor woman, Bathsheba, is pregnant as a result of their encounter. And so he tries to cover up by getting her husband back from the front line of battle so that he can spend the night with Bathsheba. And make it look as though he is the father after all. So he gets him drunk. He says, go home, spend the night with your wife. But Uriah says, no way, no way. My comrades are out roughing it in the field. I'm not going to go home to an easy life. And so David has to find another solution to the problem of Bathsheba's pregnancy. And he chooses the worst possible solution. He has her husband killed. He's a soldier and he makes sure that he's put by the general in the fiercest line of the fighting, and he's killed. And Bathsheba ends up a widow. It's a terrible, terrible story. But I think it's there, partly to show us that David, yes, is a man after God's own heart, but with absolutely feet of clay. But also to show us that, or remind us, that we are like David. I am like David. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I think you are like David as well. You might say, I've never arranged a killing. I've never arranged a killing either. But I've been angry with people. My emotions have got out of control. I'm not always as truthful as I should be. I'm not as full of integrity as I would like to be. I don't use my influence the way I should. And I don't handle sexual desire as properly as I should either. I'm like David. But here's the wonderful thing about our God. He doesn't say, David, get out of my sight. I want nothing more to do with you. He says, David, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that sin. Absolutely. But he says, I still love you and I still want to work through you. And the reason he can say that is because of what David does. See, he repents of his sin. He knows he's done wrong. He doesn't try and cover it up any longer. And he just goes to God and says, God, I'm so sorry, I've completely messed up. Please forgive me in your mercy. And he writes this glorious Psalm 51. Read it if you get a chance. It begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion blocked out my transgressions. He had to live with the consequences of the terrible thing he'd done. But God forgives him in his grace and in his mercy. God will forgive us whatever we have done in his grace and in his mercy. So my question this morning is, are we like David in that as well? We're like David in our sinfulness. Are we like David in our penitence? and are seeking God's forgiveness. So that's been our theme this morning that God works through the imperfect. We thought about how God works through imperfect institutions, like the monarchy in ancient Israel, like the church today. And we thought about how God works through imperfect individuals, like David in the Old Testament, like me, like you, like us today. Thank God that he works through us despite our imperfections. What an amazing grace that is. And the reason that it's possible, the reason that God can work with us despite our imperfections is that Jesus has become our perfection. Jesus gives us the perfection that we lack so that we don't need to be bowed down and burdened by the fact that we are never perfect. Perfectionism can be such a burden for any of us, but we can be released by it because Jesus is the one who has achieved that for us and whose perfection can be given to us by his grace and his mercy. The Apostle Paul says it like this uh, in 2 Corinthians, chapter five and verse 21. He says, God made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin, utterly perfect in every way, to be sin." For us. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was both a sacrifice for sin and he was taking our sins upon himself. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? Not just a random act, but so that in him, in the Lord Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's sometimes referred to as the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and he bears it on the cross and he deals with it. And in exchange, he gives us his perfection, his righteousness. The Bible describes our, our righteousness as being like filthy rags. And, he said, and the Bible says, take the beautiful, sparkling, brilliant white clothing of the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness and be clothed in that in the great exchange. If you know that great exchange for yourself, rejoice in it. Give thanks for it this morning as we share communion in a minute. And if you don't know the Lord's great exchange, please come and talk to us about it afterwards. Me, Clive, anybody who's been in the band, Ruth, anybody, come and talk to us. Sam is going to be doing communion. Talk to us about what that means. We'd love to talk further with you about that. Receive the Lord's forgiveness. Okay, I've, uh, I've run out of time, so let me finish now. This is um, a hymn, actually, that relates the Lord Jesus Christ to King David. Um, I didn't think we'd sing it because I didn't know how many people would know it, but let's use it as our prayer as I finish now. It goes like this. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, Exodus last week, to take away transgression, the great exchange, and rule inequity. He comes in succor speedy to those who suffer wrong, to help the poor and needy and bid the weak be strong, to give them songs for sighing, their darkness turned to light, whose souls condemned and dying are precious in his sight. You are precious in the sight of the Lord Jesus this morning. He shall come down like showers upon the fruitful earth, an image of the Holy Spirit, and with love, joy, and hope like flowers, spring in his path to birth. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever, and that name to us is love. So hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed.